Hello and good morning. As we steel ourselves for the Euros, the desperate British try to escape from Portugal and the sea snot piles up on the Turkish coast, it's time to start another wonderful week in politics. I'm Andrew Harrison and with me to start your week, I've got Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. How are you? Good weekend. Um, Yes, very good. Thank you. Uh, Half term, lots of fun with the kids. Very nice. Have you got the bunting and the trays of Stella ready for the football or did you drink it all to welcome Princess Lilibet? (laughs) <laughs> yes, Lilibet passed me by completely. So, um, and, and it's, I, I'm sure like everyone else in the country, the, the, this football tournament hasn't quite had the build-up that we're used to. So I'm still sort of kind of building up in my own mind. Well, we'll be coming back to the football in a bit with an exciting Arthur Angle, which you will enjoy. But the top story that seems to be occupying everybody's attention at the moment is Tory MPs planning to rebel against the government to reverse a cut in the international aid budget. And they're going to do it by amendment to the ARIA bill, which is Dominic Cummings' special secret project. More than 30 Tory MPs want Boris Johnson to restore a commitment to spend 0.7% of our national income on international development. Ministers cut it to 0.5% this year, which amounts to almost £4 billion. Arthur, this was a manifesto commitment, the 0.7%. Why are they rebelling over this and why now? I mean, there's been a lot of things they could have rebelled over. It's very interesting, isn't it? But I think that the sort of Cameron wing of the Tory party, you know, embraced foreign aid as quite a significant part of that rebranding of conservatism, the, dare I call it, hugger hoodie sort of, you know, liberal conservatism. Not the nasty party conservatism. Exactly. Yes. And, and of course, um, those people, you know, whilst they've been very much quelled, clearly a lot of them had to keep their heads down over Brexit and some left the party after all. Those people haven't disappeared entirely. A lot of them are still MPs. And, and you know, perhaps these people actually uh, believe in some of the things that they've stood up for. The degree to which the right-wing press and the pundits get really angry about this uh, foreign aid stuff. Maybe it's the word foreign. Who knows? Could could be. I don't know. Just you know, clutching the straws here. Uh, but has kind of elevated it in in significance. It's like treated as a far far bigger deal than it is, isn't it? And you would imagine that if you're a kind of old school centrist Tory, this would be a fight that could really uh, you know kind of paint a target on you from the mail and so on. Well, indeed, and, and again, I think that sort of makes it. I'm not going to, you know, let's not lionise these people, but it's impressive that they've been willing to take a stand. I think part of the issue, though, is that there are, the facts really are hard to dispute. You know, one, yes, the UK clearly faces economic difficulties, as everyone in the world does because of coronavirus, but the actual sum of money, $4 billion, is sort of, you know, Dido Harding burns through that just about every month on her useless test and trace. Mm-hmm. And then the other fact, which is just indisputable, is that thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people will probably die if we take this aid away from them. And so I think those are things that it get, it's rather hard to, to sort of grapple with and say, well, no, this is still the right thing to do. Yeah, um, the charities have said that the cuts already led to closure of things like feeding centres and clinics, water sanitation projects, training for healthcare workers, literacy projects are all, on, are all under threat. And as, as you said, the Rebels leader, Andrew Mitchell, the former International Development Secretary, said it would result in hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths. It is quite stark, isn't it? It's not one, it's not one of these kind of complicated, multi-level, multi-angled decisions. It's quite, you know, do you want to vote for people to have their life-saving services and projects removed? Exactly. And I think it's also, it is a case study in where, you know, the Prime Minister usually gets away with things. And let's face it, his entire life has been led 
getting away with things. But he very flippantly and dismissively referred to a great big cash machine in the sky when he uh, presented this cut, this aid cut last year in Parliament. And the kind of flippancy, the kind of disdain he appears to have for human suffering, and of course the the, the years of using racist language in various articles and so on. Mm. I think a lot of that makes people all the more uncomfortable. You know, he didn't present this as a very tough economic choice. He presented it as a sort of let's not waste money on those foreigners. And people don't like that. The rebels include um, Theresa May, former ministers Damien Green, Stephen Crabb, fighting Johnny Mercer. You know, what, what does this mean p- politically? I mean, it, it, it's often said that when people rebel first, it makes the second, the third and the fourth ones an awful lot easier. Are we seeing reasonable Tories finally growing a backbone? Well, I think there's quite a lot of usual suspects here. So, you know, Theresa May, in spite of being a former prime minister and, you know, a, a pretty hard line on some questions such as immigration, has been willing to hold the government to a fairly sort of close account on you know a number of issues andrew mitchell again you know he he built his career on the tories kind of embracing foreign aid as a sort of serious issue johnny mercer fell out in a big way with the government uh you know when his his sort of period as veterans minister didn't really work out the way he'd hoped so i i don't think we can draw too much about the wider conservative party because of course the large majority of the MPs are still, they're just lobby meat, you know, they're the people who vote for whatever they're told to vote for. And of course, a lot of them are these these uh, red wall MPs who are probably culturally um, perfectly co- comfortable with these sort of cuts to aid and, and, you know, let's spend the money at home and that sort of argument. I'm also reminded of a story from the Daily Mash, which the headline was, charity begins at home, says person who never gives anything to anybody at home. <laughs> Ironically, the rebels uh, intend to do this via an amendment to the Advanced Research and Invention Agency, ARIA, bill. And this was Dominic Cummings's, you know, secret super science team of un- underground wonks in their, their underground um, bunker. It all depends on whether the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, will allow a vote on the amendment. Is it, you know, what are you expecting? What do you think is likely to happen here? Well, Lindsay Hoyle is not nearly uh, so sort of adventurous as his predecessor, John Burko, was. So there's a risk that he might say, sorry, you know, no can do. But I suspect, given uh, the high profile of the people involved, you know, a former prime minister, several formal, former cabinet ministers, I think it would be very difficult for the speaker to, to dismiss this as a sort of parliamentary mavericks, you know, uh, bending the rules. I, I, I would be very surprised if he doesn't let the vote go ahead. What do you think Dominic Cummings will think if his uh, secret super science team bill ends up boosting the uh, international aid development bill up again? Well, I imagine that he's already extraordinarily contemptuous of parliament and all the people in it, and this will no doubt confirm him in, in his firmly held view that he is far more intelligent and should be allowed to rule the country without any checks or balances. They should just do it just to wind him up. Um, <laughs> so this is all taking place against the background of Britain hosting the G7 in Carbis Bay, Cornwall. Starts on Friday. No wonder you can't get an Airbnb. So apart from Angela Merkel windsurfing and maybe Joe Biden on a clotted cream binge, <laughs> what should we look out for, Arthur? There's a few things on the agenda. So one of them is this global tax reform, uh, which has been quite a lot in the headlines this morning to do with 
whether or not there could be a global minimum corporate tax rate, which large companies that tend to shift their profits around the world to avoid paying tax, notably companies like Amazon. So that's one of the things. Clearly, another huge agenda item is how the rich countries deal with the question of COVID and particularly COVID vaccinations. All of the countries represented are going to very quickly get to having vaccinated most of their populations and almost all of the people at risk. But of course, most of the population of the world is nowhere near being vaccinated. So that's one of the big questions. And then I think there's an interesting subplot, which whilst it's not a G7 agenda item, is the subplot about Britain monkeying around with the Northern Irish Protocol, basically behaving as a bad faith actor. And within the G7, you've got an Irish-American president, you've got three of probably the three key members of the EU now that Britain has left, namely France, Germany, Italy. And of course, the EU Commission is also attends G7 meetings. So I think there's a possibility that a bit of a circle will be formed around Boris Johnson uh, and pressure put on him. You know, you can't just break an uh, international treaty that you negotiated and signed only a few months ago. Yeah, um, Lord Frost, Frosty the Conman, has been whinging about this in the FT over the weekend, hasn't he? Trying to pretend that the Northern Ireland Protocol was somehow imposed upon them and isn't isn't working. So you think you think uh, Johnson might get mugged at the G seven? I think there's a chance of it. I'm sure that it it will be not presented as a mugging, but we know that uh, the Biden administration and, of course, Biden personally feel very strongly about what's you know, the ongoing situation in Northern Ireland, and particularly the integrity of the original, uh, you know, Good Friday Agreement, Belfast Agreement. And it seems unlikely that it won't form an agenda item. But in, in and I'm talking about Biden and Johnson's bilateral meeting. The real question is whether or not those European players at the wider G7 choose to bring it up in some context. Now, of course, a lot of the G7 is the informal meeting. It's the one occasion where kind of the world's most powerful people uh, are in one room together, or certainly the world's most powerful democratic people. Uh Um, And uh, it seems unlikely that it it won't come up, particularly as we know that the French are very exercised about the sense that Britain has really not taken seriously its undertakings um, uh, under the EU withdrawal agreement. That tax agreement that you mentioned for a minimum of 15% corporate tax, it is designed, as you said, to stop giants like Facebook and Google from moving their tax affairs around for the most convenient uh, and lowest tax arrangement they can find. This is quite bad news for Ireland, isn't it, who aren't at the G7, but will be there, as you say, is, is in uh, you know represented by the, the EU Commission. This looks like it could be the kind of the, the, the hot topic of the week. Uh, because an agreement sort of if an agreement um, is made in the communique, it then goes to the G20, which means it goes before you know lots of the other big players, including Russia and China. Do you think this is likely to go through? I mean, already loopholes have been exposed in this. Well, I certainly think it'll go through at the G7 level. But as you've mentioned, you know, countries such as Ireland, so fairly rich Western countries, but not large enough to be featuring in the G7. We've already heard Cyprus have kind of raised their concerns. That's another tax haven. 
tax havens exist in all types of different places, different types of country. And of course, you've got all the ones that Britain is ultimately responsible for that are non-sovereign entities such as Jersey and the BVI and so on. So there are so many hurdles to this uh, very promising you know, step actually translating into a completely different way of global tax being dealt with. And I think we have to assume a lot of watering down and a lot of loopholing. But on the other hand, this still is very different to the agenda that was in place even just a year ago. So I think we have to, we've got to assume that there will be some things get better as a result. It is a long way from a kind of nirvana where it feels as though companies pay tax in the right way, in the right place, in a kind of fair manner. I, I think, you know, that that may not may not be achievable in this round. Well, the key thing is that Biden wants it. Biden originally wanted 21%. This is part of the new engagement with the world for the, for the, uh, the Biden administration. And here we've, we've got Rishi Sunak is sort of seeming supportive, primarily because the US wants it, not necessarily because he, he believes in it. What, what do you think is going to happen if uh, sort of low-tax Tory MPs think that low-tax Rishi Sunak ends up abdicating sovereignty and signing up for higher taxes on the public stage at the G7? It's not, it's not exactly the best advert for you know, super-independent global Britain, is it? Well, it, it's certainly interesting because on the sovereignty point, it is literally Britain saying that our sovereignty over tax rates can be um, you know, adjusted by international agreement, which seems a very, very long way from what Lord Frost says whenever he's in any meeting. Um, On the point about the sort of low-tax Biden and so on, I think there is a bit of nuance in there. You know, every country has an interest. And what the Americans have, their interest is that the huge companies that are particularly sort of egregious in how they play the tax system are American companies. You know, is it Amazon? Is it Apple? Is it Google? Is it Facebook? Whatever. The American interest would be to have a relatively high tax rate and all of that tax paid in America. But part of the issue here is that it's actually poorer countries who are losing out. Because if if Google, for example, is very active all over the African continent, but pays zero tax to those African countries, then, of course, they're the ones that are losing out. And America would gain if then it starts paying all the corporate tax back in America. So I think... Um, uh, you know, this is not in any way to defend uh, Rishi Sunak here, uh, but I think every country in the end is playing slightly to a cynical self-interest, albeit in the overall global context of actually forcing companies to pay rather more tax than they have hitherto. The G7 meeting starts on Friday. Do, do, do G7 meetings have substantive meaning? Do they actually make things happen or is it more about sort of shifting the currents and the directions of uh, international relationships? Well, historically, G7 summits have had uh, significant outputs. So, for example, the whole thing of debt forgiveness, you know, the sort of crippling debt that uh, back in the sort of 90s was being paid by a lot of developing countries to very rich countries such as our own, that came out of a sort of G7 initiative. Again, you know, it's not impossible that we'll see something transformational on the question of uh, COVID vaccination. And then another area we haven't mentioned, which is sort of climate uh, commitments to net zero and so on. Now, clearly, the G7 doesn't include, very importantly, it doesn't include China, not a democracy. It no longer includes Russia. It was once the G8, Russia got kicked out. 
So there are some very important countries that aren't in it. And then you have the G20, which sort of encompasses that wider grouping. So it, it's not that by Saturday morning, there'll be, you know, a new world and, and, and decisions sort of set in stone. But it is definitely a significant forum. Back in domestic politics, the government's announcement that it's going to spend only a tenth of what was uh, needed on resetting education after the pandemic. This uh, caused the resignation of their education advisor to Kevin Collins last week. The government is planning to spend a total of £300 per pupil on recovery compared to £1,600 in the US and 2500 in the Netherlands. What's going to happen this week is Labour intends to force a vote on this. Uh, a lot of this podcast I think, is us trying to spot things that are going to snowball. Do you think this one might? I mean, is, are we in for another exams and school meals U-turn, do you think, or are the sums just too big? Well, it does seem to me that, um, you know, on education, whilst it ought to be a sort of vote-moving issue, the government seems to get away with playing around, uh, whether it's on, you know, school return, on, uh, you know, free school meals, the fact that Gavin Williamson is seems to be unsackable. So I'm rather fearful that not much will come of this. I think there may be a coalition of voters that are either not parents or they're, they're already too old, or maybe I, somehow they, they don't feel particularly touched by this issue. So I'm, I'm, I'm rather, I have a slightly kind of pessimistic view on this. Finally, June the 21st unlocking is looking increasingly unlikely. We've been saying this for weeks. Travel is a mess. We say this every week. But one thing that is definitely happening is the Euros. They kick off on Friday with Turkey versus Italy. And then on Sunday, England play Croatia with a fairly dilapidated England team. Um, I know you love your football, Arthur. You, you live for it, don't you? Oh, that's right, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm what they call an ultra. Absolutely, yes, out in uh, Gloucestershire. So we're going into this with um, fans, England fans, probably being more febrile than ever. They're booing the taking of the knee by their own players, including black players for England who experience personal abuse on a weekly basis on, on social media. We haven't had a major football tournament since the culture wars were declared. And, you know, last time around, there wasn't yet a kind of Lawrence Fox extended comment universe of, of sort of right wing trollumists. But last time around, there were fans chanting, we're all voting Brexit. But I have a fear that we could see some quite ugly scenes from England fans who have been kind of energised for, you know, for, you know, since the Brexit vote and have, you know, had this year cooped up inside, haven't been able to kind of exercise the the sort of, you know, emotional kind of safety valve aspect of football, which is, you know, can be hideous, can be horrible, but, uh, you know, at least it's all kind of corralled on, on Saturday. You know, I am actually quite concerned about this. I don't know, but as, as an outsider to the football universe, uh, although you are an ultra author, as you say, <laughs> when you see these stories, what do you think? I mean, do you think, you know, is this a kind of true reflection of where, of, of where English people are at at the moment? Well, I don't think it is. And the other thing is that, it seems that the media is very undecided about sort of where the numbers lie. And of course, it's almost impossible to know, presumably, if you're in a stadium, which has a certain number of thousands of people, some of them jeer, some of them probably are quiet, because they don't, they feel very uncomfortable, they don't know what to do when someone else is jeering. So, but what seems to me to be, you know, as ever, very troubling, and, and of course, um, you know, is part of the, the deadening culture wars that we're living through, is that certain sections of the media just take from it what they want, and, and that becomes the story. And this endless attack, both by cabinet ministers and the prime minister, on, on the sort of the, 
the cultural concepts of the Black Lives Matter movement. And then that's just, you know, powered on by the right wing media, particularly the sort of Daily Mail and, and, and some of the other tabloids. It is pretty ugly. And so even if in real terms, the numbers of people who sort of adhere to these views are a small number, it, they're seen as representative somehow. Yeah, I mean, my fear is that since the last time we had a major football tournament, that you know that kind of racism has been le- legitimated. I mean, you've got people, yeah. people all over social media yelling about Marxists who don't don't know what a Marxist is, but they've kind of they've picked it up from all their their own feeds from you know various columnists, all, all the usual suspects. You know, there's always been racism in in football yeah. fans, and it's always been disgusting, and it's always been horrible. But it's never really had the kind of political imprimatur that it's got now. I mean, I can foresee all of the columns coming down the conveyor belt where it's not about England's performance on the pitch and it's it's not about where the tournament's going. It's all about, you know, flop of woke England and all this kind of thing. It's you know, it's it's if they don't do well it, it's gonna be horrible. But Finally, before we go, one thing to look forward to, Arthur. You're gonna be so excited about this. On Sunday, GB News launches. Brillo Vision is coming into your homes right in the middle of the Euros when all those things we've just been talking about are going to be taking place. Will you be settling down with uh, with a bowl of peanuts to enjoy uh, Andrew Neil's exciting new broadcasting venture? Well, uh, I have to admit I was not planning to. Um, I can't even remember, you know, is it sort of Channel 937 after all the porn ones or something? <laughs> Under adult, yes. <laughs> Specialist <laughs> interest. I think it'd be down with all the mad religious channels. Who knows? It's, he's probably managed to secure slot one on news, hasn't he? Probably yeah, probably. Bumped, bumped the woke beep down to channel 3 million. Well, it's launching on the same day that England play Croatia. So that's going to be just great. I'm looking forward to it. Arthur, thanks for getting up early to start uh, the week for the listeners. Always a pleasure. And we've got you on the panel show tomorrow as well. So listeners, join me and Arthur plus more people tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Remember there's a bunker daily out Monday to Thursday and also on Saturdays. We reserve Friday for our companion podcast. Oh God, what now? If you want to support us in our valuable work, you can of course back us on Patreon, search Patreon bunker podcast to get the show early without adverts to get amazing merchandise, numerous other things as well. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bunker Daily, Start Your Week, was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Arthur Snell. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>